Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, December 15th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. The U.S. Fed forecasts three rate cuts next year. Former Pakistan Prime Minister Khan is charged with leaking state secrets. The U.S. House approves the Biden impeachment inquiry. Japanese Prime Minister Kishida ousts four cabinet ministers amid an ongoing fraud scandal. Russia's Putin holds his annual press conference. Heavy rainfall worsens the humanitarian situation in Gaza. Armenia and Azerbaijan exchange prisoners amid an effort to normalize relations. The UK moves to protect controversial speech regarding the Israel-Palestine conflict. The U.S. terrorist watch list nearly doubles to two million in six years. And Australia's worst female serial killer is acquitted of killing her children. In our first story, the U.S. Fed holds rates steady and projects cuts in 2024. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, CBS, Reuters, ABC News, CNN, and Yahoo Finance. The U.S. Federal Reserve on Wednesday announced for the third straight time that it wouldn't be changing its key short-term interest rate from its 22-year high of 5.25 to 5.5%. In addition, the central bank suggested there could be three rate cuts next year, reducing the rate by three-quarters of a percent. Fed Chair Jerome Powell said in a press conference that the appropriate level will be 4.6 percent at the end of 2024. The announcements come as the Fed projects inflation to drop to 2.4 percent next year and possibly 2.2 percent by 2025, closer to the central bank's goal of 2 percent inflation. Previously, the Fed attempted to reduce inflation by limiting the asset purchases it executed to keep the economy going during the height of the COVID pandemic, and then quickly raising its benchmark policy interest rate starting in March 2022 from near zero to its current level. Powell, however, emphasized that inflation is too high and the path is uncertain. He went on to say that although rate hikes slowed the housing market, employment is still high and consumer spending has remained strong, especially in the current holiday season. Powell also maintained that future rate hikes remained on the table. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and now our first spin is the Democratic narrative from the Washington Post. The economic recovery from the COVID era is nearing the finish line, and we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Inflation, jobs, wages, and consumer spending data are all doing so well Even the deliberate Powell has been moved to hold rates steady and forecast potential decreases. The markets reacted well to the news, and it looks like the U.S. under President Joe Biden is headed toward a great 2024. Here's the Republican narrative from Town Hall. The Biden administration and the Fed can spin these numbers in their favor, but they shouldn't ignore that Americans have faced more than two years of negative real wages because inflation has outpaced wage growth. American spending power has been decimated, and their debt has skyrocketed because of the inflation brought on by Democrats' big spending. We can't trust the current regime to truly get the economy rolling. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's a 45% chance that the U.S. will enter a recession before 2025. 
Scott, I think I am propping up the American economy on all the little Christmas trinkets that I'm buying. Not the big stuff, not a big Christmas gift, but a, a little thing of candy canes here and then a little thing of what a squishy mushy little little jelly toys and uh, right, all, all right. my trinkets. Whatever the opposite of death by a thousand cuts, that's what you're doing that to the economy. Yes. A Pakistan court indicts Imran Khan in the state secrets case. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Indian Express, Voice of America, Bloomberg, Al Jazeera, and The Hindu. Former Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan and his close aide, former Foreign Minister Shah Mahmood Kershi, were charged on Wednesday with leaking state secrets, another setback for the jailed politician seeking to run in Pakistan's February general election. Both pleaded not guilty to the charges, reportedly read out in the Adela jail courtroom of making public a classified cable that Pakistan's ambassador to Washington had sent to Islamabad in 2022. Khan's lawyer accused the court of a lack of transparency and an unfair trial and objected to the proceedings as no charge was framed before us nor signed by the accused. Legal experts said a guilty verdict could result in up to 14 years in prison or death. Khan and Kershi were charged in the same case in October, but the Islamabad High Court, on procedural grounds, ruled against a prison trial. On December 4th, a special court indicted them both again, making way for a trial to proceed while the defendants are imprisoned. Khan alleges that the classified cable proves a U.S. role in the Pakistan military's overthrow of his government in 2022, following his return from a Moscow visit a day before Russia invaded Ukraine. The U.S. and the Pakistani military have rejected these allegations. Khan was removed from office by a parliamentary confidence vote. He was disqualified from running for public office for five years and is serving a three-year prison sentence after he was convicted of failing to disclose proceeds from the sale of state gifts. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. Narrative A comes from the News International. It's encouraging for the rule of law in Pakistan that the case against Imran Khan is now being retried. The former prime minister, who claims to be a victim of U.S. conspiracy, exploited an unoffensive secret cable to fabricate a narrative against the opposition parties and state institutions. By making the document public and not returning it, Khan indulged in political opportunism with the help of Shah Mahmood Kershi willfully damaging U.S.-Pakistan relations and violating the country's laws. It's high time that power-hungry Khan is removed from political life. And Narrative B from the Express Tribune. The charges against Khan and Kershi are a farce and politically motivated to prevent the former prime minister, who is very popular, from running for office. This explains the haste and lack of transparency in proceedings earlier declared unconstitutional by the Islamabad High Court. Instead of Khan, it should be those who conspired to topple him in 2022 who must stand trial. There is a reason the explicit secret cable must be withheld from the indicted duo. If Khan is convicted, Pakistan is in for troubled times just before the elections. And here's a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's an 82% chance of an India-Pakistan armed conflict leading to at least 100 deaths before 2050. The U.S. House votes to formalize the Biden impeachment inquiry. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, the Associated Press, USA Today, Reuters, and the White House. 
The U.S. House of Representatives voted Wednesday along party lines 221 to 212 to formalize an impeachment inquiry into Democratic President Joe Biden. Following Republican allegations that Biden and his family have taken part in an influence peddling scheme with foreign entities for financial gain. While focusing on the president, Republicans have also used their inquiry to look into his son, Hunter Biden, and overseas business deals that they claim may have benefited the elder Biden. The impeachment probe was opened in September by then-House Speaker Kevin McCarthy without a formal vote. By formalizing the probe, Republicans hope they'll have more success obtaining information from the White House, which in turn says it has cooperated fully with the investigation. This came the same day that Hunter Biden, who claims that his father had no involvement in his business dealings, defied a House committee subpoena for a closed-door deposition, saying he would only provide his testimony publicly. Meanwhile, the White House issued a statement from Biden saying Congress needs to take action on important priorities for the nation and the world, rather than focusing on a baseless political stunt not supported by facts. Thanks, Melissa. We have four different narrative spins on this story. Let's dig in with the Republican narrative from National Review. A political victory for Speaker Mike Johnson and House Republicans. Investigations into the Biden's dodgy business dealings are about uncovering the truth. Although Biden might not ultimately be impeached, it's still important to follow the evidence to the end and inform the American electorate of Biden's true nature prior to next year's presidential election. Here's the Democratic narrative from the Los Angeles Times. Instead of addressing Americans' concerns on issues of real substance, House Republicans are going on a wild goose chase without any evidence. If they truly wish to deliver meaningful good, they would stop prioritizing this sham over passing much-needed legislation. The impeachment vote merely reaffirms that Republicans are not fit to govern public office. And the cynical narrative from the Washington Times. As seen with Trump in 2019 and now with Biden, The possibility of impeachment once the heavyweight of public office discipline has become a fickle and arbitrary threat used by both sides of the political spectrum. For such a tool to be abused by both Republicans and Democrats is embarrassing and highlights how low American politics has fallen in recent years. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 25 percent chance that Biden will be impeached by the House. Kashida ousts four cabinet ministers over a financial scandal. Here are the facts. As agreed upon by Japan Today, Al Jazeera, France 24, The Indian Express, AFP, and BBC News. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida forced the resignation of four cabinet ministers on Thursday as the leader looks to regain public trust amid the fallout of a large financial scandal that has haunted his ruling Liberal Democratic Party, or LDP. Chief Cabinet Secretary Hirokazo Matsuno, a close ally of Kishida, Economy and Industry Minister Yasutoshi Nishimura, Internal Affairs Minister Junji Suzuki, and Agriculture Minister Ichiro Miyashida were all let go. The ministers are from Japan's Abe faction, which is the LDP's most powerful faction, named after former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who was assassinated. Members of the Abe faction allegedly received 500 million yen, that's 3.4 million American dollars, in political kickbacks, which triggered one of Japan's largest political crises ever. In addition to the four ministers, Michiko Ueno, a special advisor to Kishida, and five deputy ministers also left their posts. 
Kashida said that he would deal with the allegations head on. Prosecutors have launched an investigation into the Abe faction as it looks for the fundraising proceeds missing from party accounts. Dozens of lawmakers are implicated in the scandal and will have their offices investigated as part of the probe, which will also examine whether other LDP factions, including one Kashida led up until last week, are also of interest. Former Prime Minister Abe led his namesake faction until his assassination last year, and his faction has led the politically diverse LDP, which has governed Japan for decades with little interruption. An anonymous lawmaker told broadcaster ANN that politicians pocketed excess funds, and Kishida himself allegedly failed to declare more than 20 million yen, or 141,000 U.S. dollars, in three years. Despite the LDP's dominance since 1955, Kishida has seen his approval rating plummet, and the party's overall approval rating fell below 30% for the first time since 2012, according to a survey released Tuesday. The LDP's opposition failed to advance a no-confidence motion against Kishida's cabinet, and Japan will not hold a general election until 2025. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, starting with Narrative A from SNA Japan. While the LDP has built enough power over the last seven decades to not crumble from the Abe-era corruption scandal, Japan's ruling party is severely wounded and may not be able to continue its run of dominance forever. Prime Minister Kishida's approval rating was already falling thanks to debilitating inflation, and now the Japanese people have even more reason to question the credibility of their government. Corruption plagued the Abe regime as bureaucrats and legislators lined their pockets, but Kishida may not be completely clean in this scandal either. NHK brings us Narrative B. Kishida values maintaining transparency and promoting trust in his government, and his decision to reshuffle his cabinet shows his commitment to stability. Kishida took preemptive measures to root out any corruption that could derail the public's trust in his cabinet and he is seeking to move the LDP beyond the Abe era. While the faction remains extremely important in the LDP, it's not immune from scrutiny, and the Prime Minister will put the interests of the public above all. The nerds are at it again from Metaculus, saying there's a 50% chance that the Liberal Democratic Party will lose its status as the largest party in the House of Representatives of Japan by May 2043. Shuffle. Yeah. Big kerfuffle. Yeah. That's pretty good. My boss, when I worked at the University of Idaho, for some reason, my boss used the word kerfuffle a lot. I don't Mm. know why. I was aware of the word, but I probably have heard it. I probably heard kerfuffle like 35 times in my life, and 30 of them were from him. (laughs) And one from me. (laughs) One from you. Yep. Yep. Another weird thing my doctor says a lot like, this doesn't make my eye twitch. Like if the results from your colonoscopy, for instance, are like positive, or let's say there's a little something weird in your colonoscopy, she'll go, oh, that doesn't really make my eye twitch. So it's, and she means it doesn't alarm her, but I don't know. It's just too visceral. I don't need to hear. Yeah, that is a weird one. Yeah. (laughs) That's a little strange to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe she thinks this is really good. This is my thing. And people are like, oh, this is what my doctor says. And man, isn't she great? Yeah, this is her dynamite. <laughs> this is like her, this yeah. is her big thing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I had an electrician who had a, an eye that twitched, and I was like, that's a, that's someone who's worked around electricity he, a lot. Being yes. an electrician is really dangerous, by the way. 
Honestly, I was like, I, I thought that gave him street cred. I was like, okay, this guy's right. seen a lot of things, and he's and right. he actually was he was a really good electrician. So. Look for an electrician with a twitchy eye. That means he's legit. Putin holds an annual press conference as his re-election bid begins. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, the Associated Press, the Evening Standard, Breaking the News, and Colorado Springs Gazette. After announcing his bid for re-election last week, Russian President Vladimir Putin held his annual press conference on Thursday, this year combining the event with Direct Line, an opportunity for everyday Russians to write to Putin with their questions and concerns. The Kremlin said that roughly two million people had submitted questions ahead of the four-hour event, which took place in Moscow. Putin's opening remarks noted his thoughts on the importance of Russia's sovereignty. He said the economy was strong for a country in wartime before the subject quickly turned to Ukraine. There will be peace in Ukraine when we achieve our objectives, he said, adding that Russia's goals of denazification, demilitarization, and of Ukraine's neutral status remain unchanged from the outset of the war. He revealed that some 617,000 Russian soldiers were currently fighting in Ukraine. 244,000 of those conscripts who were called up to serve alongside the professional military. Putin added that with just shy of 500,000 soldiers under contract with the Russian Defense Ministry, there was no need for a general mobilization of forces this coming year. Describing the frontline situation, Putin said, Practically along the entire line of contact, our armed forces are improving their situation, to put it modestly. Meanwhile, he claimed that Ukrainian leaders continued to throw troops at unsuccessful operations. I don't know why they are doing it. They are pushing their people to get killed. Putin criticized the West for its aspirations to creep up to our borders, he claimed. The Russians and the Ukrainians are one people, essentially, and what we are witnessing now is a great tragedy, resembling a civil war between brothers on opposing sides. Although he accused the U.S. of staging a coup d'etat in Ukraine in 2014 and forcing Russia's hand, Putin described the U.S. as an important and necessary country on the world stage. He said Moscow was prepared to hold talks with Washington if certain conditions such as respect and compromise were met. Putin also took a question from a New York Times reporter who asked about the possibility of a prisoner swap involving journalist Evan Gerskovich and Paul Whelan, a former U.S. Marine, both of whom are imprisoned in Russia. Quote, we want to reach an agreement, and these agreements must be mutually acceptable and must suit both parties, Putin said. It is not simple. I will not go into details now, but in general, it seems to me that we speak a language that is understandable to each other. I hope we will find a solution. Thanks, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the Associated Press. This is a highly choreographed event that's intended to invigorate Putin's 2024 election campaign. With the Kremlin screening questions to paint Putin in a favorable light, this whole event is a spectacle rather than any real attempt to have scrutiny. Here's the pro-Russia narrative from TASS. As is customary every year, Putin gives people from across Russia, be they journalists or otherwise, the opportunity to ask him questions on all manners of issues relating to the state, its health, and its direction. This is an unfiltered event where Putin speaks openly. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict a 50% chance that Putin will cease to hold the office 
of President of Russia by November 2028. The UN deems Gaza a living hell after heavy rains flood makeshift camps. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, CNN, BBC News, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and The Guardian. The humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip continues to deteriorate after heavy rainfall washed out tents and flooded some areas. Nearly all of Gaza's population, estimated at around 85% of the Strip's population of over 2 million people, have been displaced by Israeli bombardment and military operations, with hunger and disease increasingly running rampant. The head of the UN's Agency for Palestinian Refugees described the situation as, quote, a living hell, as fighting rages across the entire Strip. Israeli officials disputed U.S. President Joe Biden's comments that Israel's bombing campaign has been indiscriminate. One official also rejected an intelligence assessment reported by CNN that 45% of the 29,000 air-to-ground munitions that Israel has dropped on Gaza since October 7th have been unguided dumb bombs, saying that a bomb's accuracy is determined by the pilot dropping the munition. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is expected in Israel on Thursday after traveling to Saudi Arabia to speak with the country's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman about regional security, attacks in the Red Sea by Yemen's Houthi rebels, and the possibility of normalizing relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. In Israel, Sullivan will meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and top military leaders to conduct extremely serious conversations and work on reducing civilian casualties as well as the return of hostages. According to two U.S. officials, the Biden administration is again delaying the licenses for selling more than 20,000 U.S.-made rifles to Israel due to concerns regarding Israeli settler attacks against Palestinian civilians in the West Bank. The U.S. Department of State sent the rifles for another review before being delivered to Israel, as the Biden administration believes that Israel is not doing enough to tackle settler violence. In the West Bank, Israeli forces have been operating in the northern city of Jenin since Tuesday, killing 11 Palestinians so far, reportedly including an unarmed teenager inside a medical complex. A video circulated on social media of Israeli soldiers singing Hanukkah songs inside a mosque in Jenin, generating outrage from Palestinians. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has left nearly 19,000 people in the Gaza Strip dead, many of whom it claims are children. The official Israeli death toll stands at 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Thank you, Scott, for those facts, and we'll start with a pro-Israel narrative from the Jerusalem Post. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel cannot allow Hamas to survive. Hamas seized upon the temporary pause to mark Israeli positions and prepare itself for continued attacks on Israeli forces in Gaza. Indeed, the pace at which Israeli forces maneuvered in Gaza threw Hamas's military leadership off kilter, and Israel will have to work intelligently in its campaign in the south of the Strip to fully eliminate the terrorist group so it can never launch an attack like October 7 again. And Middle East Eye brings us the pro-Palestine narrative. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people as a whole. Nowhere in Gaza is safe and Israel has effectively rendered the north of the Strip unlivable. Unfortunately, the temporary ceasefire only gave civilians a few days of relative rest, and now Israel has returned to killing Palestinians at an unprecedented rate. The U.S., Israel's biggest ally, must exert more pressure to end the war. 
And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 54% chance that Israel will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. Armenia and Azerbaijan exchange prisoners of war. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera. Azberez, Eurasia Net, Voice of America News, and the Azerbaijan Republic. 32 Armenians captured between 2020 and 2023 were traded on Wednesday in return for two Azerbaijani soldiers held captive since April this year, with the exchange taking place on the border between the two countries. In a statement posted on Facebook, Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan confirmed that all 32 prisoners had crossed the border from Azerbaijan and are to undergo a preliminary medical examination before returning to their families. Azerbaijan's State Commission, Captive and Missing Hostage Citizens, released its statement confirming the news, the health of the Azerbaijani soldiers being confirmed by the International Committee of the Red Cross. On December 7, the two countries released a joint statement announcing their intentions to normalize relations and reach a new peace treaty, and announced this week's prisoner swap, as well as Armenia's support for Azerbaijan's Conference of Parties, COP29, bid as a gesture of goodwill. Since 2020, conflict has rekindled between the two states concerning the Nagorno-Karabakh region, which until recent fighting in September saw an Azerbaijani military operation capture the territory containing a population of approximately 120,000. Intermittent conflict between the two states concerning Nagorno-Karabakh has occurred since the end of World War I. Following Azerbaijan's military operation, the majority of the region's population fled to Armenia. Last month, Armenia claimed that 55 prisoners were being held by Azerbaijan, and Russian state media has claimed that both countries are in continued discussions to withdraw troops from the Armenia-Azerbaijan border. Thanks, Melissa. Narrative A comes from Daily News Egypt. The agreement of a prisoner exchange between Azerbaijan and Armenia is a historic development that the region is hopeful will be the first step toward an end to hostilities. Amicable developments are an unexpected turn after decades of conflict, and the unified call for security surely paves the way toward further reconciliation via a peace treaty. And here's Narrative B from the Eurasia Review. A peace treaty does not need to be in place to advance improved bilateral relations between Baku and Yerevan. The prisoner exchange is a helpful example that, even without a peace treaty, the two nations can cooperate without an accord. Although inevitably still the end goal, practical normalization must be prioritized over a rushed approach towards ink on paper. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 30% chance that Azerbaijan will invade Armenia before the year 2030. A new report says a U.S. terror watch list has reached 2 million people. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, Newsmax, and WCBM Radio. A new CBS Reports investigation has found that the FBI's Terrorist Screening Dataset, or TSD, now includes roughly 2 million individuals, up from 120,000 in 2003 and 1.16 million in 2017. FBI policy states there must be reasonable suspicion to place someone on the list, 
though it doesn't specify what those suspicions are and will neither confirm nor deny names on the list. According to a four-decade veteran intelligence worker, Russ Travers, a name on the list doesn't mean they're a terrorist, but rather that this person needs a closer look. Monty Hawkins, who has been a member of the National Security Council since 9-11, stated that a vast majority of those on the list are not U.S. citizens or legal residents. Other national security officials, meanwhile, told CBS that some people on the TSD should be removed due to reasons such as death or mistaken identity. However, they added that auditing every file on the list is unrealistic due to a staff shortfall. The report, which followed an extensive review of court records, government documents, and over a dozen interviews with current and former intelligence leaders, does show that thousands of Americans are on the list. The list has also reportedly included tens of thousands of inaccurate suspects, including 30,000 airline passengers mistakenly flagged in 2006. According to the Department of Homeland Security, 98% of those who have reported complaints over being on the list were found to have been included because they shared a similar name to others on the list. The report also claimed it can be difficult to remove a name from the TSD, citing a Stanford Ph.D. student who had to fight in court for nine years before the FBI admitted she was on the list due to an agent's mistake. Meanwhile, the government says it's making the system more accurate through the use of facial recognition and fingerprints. Thanks, Melissa. We have a left narrative spin from The Intercept. Numerous Americans have been wrongly added to the terror watch list due to the TSD's inherent racial biases, causing them reputational damage and hindering their ability to travel freely or find a job. One Air Force veteran, Sadiq Long, who has no criminal record, was pulled over three times in just over a month due to his Muslim name being in a gang member database connected to TSD. People like him not only struggle to fly or find jobs but also have to deal with cops pulling them over on a routine basis simply due to how their name is spelled. And here's the right narrative from the Heritage Foundation. The terror watch list is certainly flawed, but not for the reasons the liberal media would tell you. The real issue at hand is that the FBI continually flags actual criminals, investigates them, and then lets them loose to commit their crimes. This happened in 2016 after Omar Mateen, the Orlando, Florida mass shooter, who was investigated two times before being let loose into the public to freely purchase weapons. Mateen had been on the list but was taken off for murky reasons. If there was a rash of Highland Scottish terrorism, I would be on that watch list because of my, sure. my very common name. That's just the way so that many. is. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's interesting. It feels like there should be a little more nuance in the watch list than just what someone's name is. Yeah, it feels but like it's, it it's just me. getting so it's getting so big, and they're so short on staff that uh, yeah, yeah, they're like, yeah, we're not going to move remove any of those dead people from the watch list because we don't have time. <laughs> we're understaffed. You and I have a story spreadsheet that we work off of, and that thing's getting pretty long. I don't want to clean it up. Do you <laughs> imagine <laughs> if it had? Imagine if it had two million old stale stories. Oh God. Uh, we, hopefully someday it will. We don't have to be the ones to fix it. Yeah. Let's just delete that everything. On somebody else. Yes. Yeah. Somebody who so, really likes doing that. So somebody I get the does. impulse not, not to fix the list, but it's not good enough. 
the UK will protect provocative university speech surrounding Israel and Palestine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, The Wellesley News, and The Telegraph. Arif Ahmed, the UK's new Director of Freedom of Speech and Academic Freedom within the Office for Students, or OFS, has announced that students will be allowed to make controversial statements regarding the Israel-Palestine conflict, with colleges and universities facing fines for restricting such speech. Allowable rhetoric includes supporting a global intifada against Israel and slogans like from the river to the sea. Ahmed clarified, however, that speech related to illegal harassment, stirring up racial hatred, or calls for genocide would not be acceptable under any circumstances. The revised speech code published Thursday comes after a group of Oxford professors filed a motion to the local university college union calling for intifada until victory. The motion was canceled by the university over legal fears. Under the new protection, students will be able to file complaints if they feel they've been penalized for exercising free speech, and they will also cover visiting speakers whose invitations are canceled. Ahmed argued that students and teachers must be allowed to hear and discuss a whole range of issues, including ones that they might find controversial or offensive, or distasteful or shocking. Complaints filed to the OFS won't be reviewed until August 1, 2024, the start date of the new program. Once it begins, the Higher Education Watchdog will list the names of colleges and students' unions found to have violated the dictate. Thank you, Scott. The Wellesley News brings us a pro-Palestine narrative. Pro-Palestine protesters should be allowed to speak freely on campus and anywhere else their message needs to be heard. While some governments and universities are beginning to understand this, Others, particularly in the U.S., are still silencing student speech while simultaneously allowing Palestinian activists to be doxxed, threatened, and harassed. The real issue at hand here is Israel's brutal treatment of Palestinians, a debate our institutions aren't allowing to happen, and pro-Palestinian speech is often unfairly conflated with hate speech. The Telegraph brings us the pro-Israel narrative. While pro-Palestine activists claim they're simply asserting their right to question Israel and defend racial minorities in the West, what they've actually done is categorize their racial counterparts as an enemy to be defeated at all costs. This has led Hamas sympathizers under the protection of today's polarized political climate to live peacefully in cities like London, while Jews face the worst attack on their people since the Holocaust. Anti-Semitic speech can never be tolerated under any circumstances. And the nerds have a say from Metaculus, with the nerd narrative saying there's a 50% chance that Israel will recognize Palestine by September 2067. Our final story in Australian mother's convictions for killing her four children are overturned. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, CBS, CNN, and The Washington Post. On Thursday, the New South Wales Criminal Appeals Court in Sydney overturned the convictions of Kathleen Fulbig after she spent two decades imprisoned for the deaths of her four children. In 2003, Fulbig was found guilty of three counts of murder and one count of manslaughter in the deaths of her young children. The evidence provided was circumstantial, and the case was made on the assumption that it was highly unlikely her four children all died of natural causes. Fulbig's first child, Caleb, died 19 days after being born in 1989. Patrick, her second child, born in 1991, died eight months after birth. While her third and fourth children, Sarah and Laura, 
died at 10 months old in 1993 and 19 months old six years later, respectively. The prosecution argued that Fulbig smothered all four children, resulting in their deaths. In 2018, scientific evidence suggested that three of her children likely died from genetic disorders. Both of Fulbig's daughters were carriers of the Calm 2 genetic variant, with Laura having possibly died of myocarditis and her son likely died of a neurogenetic disorder. Although an inquiry was opened in 2019, it upheld her conviction. However, a second inquiry, published this year, found reasonable doubt of her guilt, with Fulbig freed and pardoned in June. After having her convictions overturned, Fulbig will seek restitution from the New South Wales government, claiming that while updated science and genetics were what vindicated her, there were methods available to prove her innocence in 1999. Thank you, Scott. Here's Narrative A from the Australian National University. The case of Kathleen Fulbig, which has largely played out in the press, should force Australia to pursue legal reforms to its broken system, which failed to keep up with the science. With the speed of scientific advancements, this court must evolve just as quickly to ensure that no one else sits unjustly in prison as their life passes by. And The Guardian brings us Narrative B. This travesty of justice stems from far beyond just a failure to keep with the science. Efforts to prove her innocence were actively stifled by a complacent legal system that negligently relied purely on circumstantial evidence. It's time that Australia implement an independent post-conviction review commission to increase the effectiveness and trustworthiness of the criminal court system. Feels like this should be something that there's a true crime Netflix show or podcast about there, but there's got to be, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, because it's just, it's kind of I just gone through the news. I guess it was an open so. and shut case before, but it turns out it wasn't, right? Yeah. So there probably isn't yet. Yeah, but give it a couple also, months. I think this one's also too big of a bummer for the kind of people who like true crime to want to listen to, right? Yeah. Well, at least she was acquitted. That's yeah, yeah, I guess so. Maybe there's some joy in the reconciliation or, yeah, who knows? Did you watch that, the staircase one? Mm-mm. Yeah, it was a good one. Was good. There was a, I didn't watch the, so the staircase, I think it was on HBO. It was a true crime dramatization of the making of a true crime documentary and what happened in doing it. It was pretty, pretty interesting. Mm. The staircase, it was in the news. Like it was like a big show that came out. It was like a year ago. What's his name? The King's speech is in it. Oh. Colin Firth. He's yeah, the, he's, he's great. The, he's the dad. So yeah, it was good. Not my cup of tea. Um, True crime. Colin Firth. Oh, true oh crime. no, yeah, I love yeah. him. Oh, He's great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah just well, a serial you know podcast. Then you know what, Melissa? Skip it, okay? Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, December 15th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.